You're listening to The Deadly Dose, hosted by Harini Bott and Megan Gesner. Hello, Poison Pals. Welcome to another episode. Ah. <laughs> ah. Okay, everyone. Take a deep breath. ASMR. Let's all take a deep breath in. And breathe out. <sighs> Let's do it one more time. And when you breathe out, really focus on relaxing those oh, shoulders yeah. if you're mm. driving and you've been mm. tense trying to get to wherever you're going if you're sitting in traffic when you breathe out this time just wiggle 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 loose wiggle those shoulders ready breathe in breathe out wiggle 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 and big one <laughs> <laughs> And that's our episode. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs> okay. Right. I just felt like we needed a little moment of, ah, uh, breathe. Yes. I'm recording on a work from home day. And so I do feel a little bit more relaxed mm. and was able to let that sigh out. Yes. Just enjoy home. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Very, very lucky. Very lucky. I can do that. Yeah. I am enjoying at home too. And it's sunny outside. It feels good. It's a good day. Mm-hmm. It's a good day to talk about some poison. Hell yeah. We talk about poison. <laughs> I mean, industrial poison. I'm into it. Actually, actually, this is a follow-up or not a follow-up. This is a prequel to a story I have already done in the past. And that is the story of the man who determined the age of the earth. Dr. Claire Patterson. Megan, mm-hmm. you remember that story? Yes. Mm-hmm. How lead was in I do. everything. Yes. Yes. He, he, whenever I think of Dr. Claire Patterson, I think of the image of Danny DeVito in Always Sunny where he cleanses his whole body. He shaves his whole body and puts all this hand sanitizer on him. And he's like, pure. I need to be pure. That's right. And I only think that about Dr. Patterson because... He also created uh, the like the first clean, um, clean what's room, clean yeah. room in in yeah. labs, and so and there's even images mm-hmm. if you Google him. Um, there's an image of him like totally shirtless yeah. in his knickers, sweeping, mopping, yeah, lab swabbing or the poop so, deck, and everything's in Saran wrap. It's 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 not so. <laughs> and uh, there's yeah. so when I post this on TikTok, there are people. Did you ever watch Malcolm in the Middle? Yeah. Megan? Like the number one reference to that exact scene that you're discussing about Dr. Claire Patterson, about him cleaning and being like, you yeah. know, very obsessive about it. Yeah, is yeah. They're like, oh, this reminds me of uh, Malcolm in the Middle with the, the dad. dad. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. I can see the picture of Brian Cranston. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. the dad. Also, the actor who plays Walter White Correct. in Breaking Bad, which you still need to watch. That's an yeah. aside. But I'll have to go back and look yeah, at the reference. Yeah, I, I don't know why there's an image of me of him popping up in my mind and him just like in his tidy whities like cleaning everything like furiously. 
I feel like he was always in his tidy whities in that <laughs> that's, show. That's probably why. He's also always in his tidy whities in Breaking Bad. Is I mean, it really? It's just a Brian Cranston thing. Yeah. Uh, he just wants to be free. <laughs> that's that's how he acts. I know. He's the one actor keeping briefs alive. <laughs> that's right. Single-handedly. <laughs> yeah. He's keeping Haynes in business. He is. He is. <laughs> This, so before we get into this particular story, I have an interesting call back and a call forward to to other stories that we did in the past. So it's a blending of a blending. So okay. uh, Megan did the amazing story about the 1969 Cuyahoga River Fire in Ohio, mm-hmm. right? And that was how it yes. about Earth Day and everything like that. If you guys haven't listened to that episode, please do. We will put that episode in the show notes. That whole episode is about how the Ohio River fire, well, Ohio River caught fire because of an oil mm-hmm. slick on top because of the pollution and things like that. I did a little more digging recently around that because of the Ohio train derailment that happened just mm-hmm. recently in early March. Mm-hmm. And I found out that the spark that caused the actual fire in Cuyahoga was from that same train like that same train company Northfolk southern oh snap isn't that nuts wow full circle full circle Norfolk southern that train company it was one of their trains that was going over this rickety bridge that goes over yeah. the the oh my god why can't i ever remember how to say it cuyahoga cuyahoga yeah okay cuyahoga river and there mm-hmm. were sparks and flames going on and it lit that whole yep. river on fire that was the spark mm. wow Norfolk Southern has a chokehold on Ohio, dude. Yes, for which reals. probably makes. I'm sure they are the main one of the main freight train lines in that area, but yeah. it also makes sense because you did say, per the recent spill, that yeah. some of the parts on their trains are still operating from the 1800s. So, yeah, makes That's sense. Right. Yeah, it sadly does make sense. <laughs> My gosh. But yeah, I just thought that was interesting. To that is so that is very, very interesting. Yeah. All right. Making all kinds of connections here today. And now we're gonna make some more with this story. So let's get into it. So this is the prequel to the Age of the Earth series with Dr. Claire Patterson and how he figured out that lead was in everything. Okay. This particular story. This prequel is a story of the engineer who single-handedly invented two of the biggest mistakes of the 20th century, the two deadliest inventions of the 20th century. Hmm. And like Dr. Claire Patterson, the engineer, Thomas is this is about Thomas Midgley, who was okay. equally as obsessive and hyper-focused at whatever task he set his mind to, similar to Dr. Claire. For example, his home lawn was his pride and joy to the to the point where people would travel all the way to Columbus, Ohio. This also takes place in Ohio. Yeah, Ohio's getting beat <laughs> I up. Know. I know. <laughs> Just to see Mitchley's perfectly manicured lawn. He installed, because he's an inventor, he installed a wind gauge that would just sit atop his house, and it was connected to an alarm system, and it essentially would ring an alert anytime there were high winds that would be in danger of affecting his lawn. So he'd be like, Mm -hmm. all right, got it. I don't know what he would do, though. Like, he can't, like, go cover his lawn, I guess, but... Mm -hmm. can, like, put spikes in it or something to make sure it doesn't rip up from the earth. Mm, I see. Okay, okay. And this was half a century before Alexa and Hey Google. Mitchley mm-hmm. set up a rotary phone in his room that, with a simple few spins of the dial, would activate the sprinklers to, you guessed it, Megan, his lawn. <laughs> wow. 
I love how passionate he is about his lawn. Yeah. Then at 51, Midgley contracted polio and was in a wheelchair for the remainder of his life. Mm. Some say this was a blow to the engineer's confidence or maybe his outlook on life. But just like his inventions, he found this as an opportunity for a novel solution. All appeared that Midgley had found a new confidence in his way of life. But then on the morning of November 2nd, 1944, Midgley was found dead in his room. Hmm. And it maybe it's karma, maybe it's just ironic, but he was strangled to death by one of his own inventions. Oh my god. I, was, I did not see that coming. <laughs> the way that I think about it, like once I'll explain it to you, it reminds me of Wallace and Gromit. And you know how all those contraptions to get him out yeah. of bed and like yeah, put yeah. his clothes on? I imagine mm-hmm. I imagine Thomas Midgley to be one of those types of people. And it just okay. went wrong. That is so sad. But also so ludicrous. It's so ludicrous, but I would ho- I would hold your sympathy, let's say. Oh, okay. okay. So karma. Okay, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to try to understand why you chose that word, but all right, all right. Okay. So the paper saying the late chemical engineers praises, touting him as a heroic, one-of-a-kind citizen who contributed massively to the booming tech era with his automobile and refrigeration industry inventions. Hmm. His contemporaries, like Orville Wright, grieved over the huge loss, saying, I have been proud to call him a friend. Mm. But how times can change. If you Mm. search Midgley on Google today, I guarantee you will not find anything positive. He is effectively canceled. Oh, I'm waiting for you. I want to Google it, but I'm going to let you tell me why. If you Google it, it will tell you right there. So don't. Okay, well, Uh, I don't want to spoil it for me. His, you can look it up on images. You just want to see a face to a name if you'd like. Okay. 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 So his contributions to chemistry were great, but had dire consequences. He invented leaded gasoline and the first commercial use of chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs, which created the hole in the ozone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, none of these inventions were born out of bad intentions. Like, there's nuance to that. I would say it was mostly the opposite. Leaded gasoline solved an urgent problem of engine mm-hmm. knocking in cars, and chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs solved a safer or provided a safer refrigerant. It only mm-hmm. became common knowledge later that both of these historic inventions would have deadly secondary effects. Right. However, just across the board, there's likely no other person on Earth that did more damage to the health of the hu- health of humans and our planet than Thomas Midgley. So let's talk about him and how he got to where he was. Midgley's career began at the National Register Company, or the NCR, in Dayton, Ohio, where mm-hmm. a man named Charles F. Kettering became famous for inventing NCR's first electric-powered cash register in a way to mechanically run customers' credit checks right from the sales floor. From cash registers, Kettering turned to a bigger machine, the automobile. Mm -hmm. He created his own independent lab called Delco and transformed the car industry from there by inventing the first electric ignition system, Mm -hmm. which did away with the archaic hand crank system. This put Delco on the map. And in 1916, it was acquired by General Motors, where Kettering would be for the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. This is Kettering. Kettering is like one of the founding people of GM, just, okay. just so you guys know. Already obsessed with inventing himself, Midgley applied to work with Kettering and was hired immediately at 27 years old. Mm-hmm. A day after finishing one of his projects, Midgley walks into Kettering's office and asks him, 
What do you want me to work on next, boss? And this brings us to deadly invention number one. Kettering assigned Midgley with solving this horrid and pesky engine knocking. I mm-hmm. think we talked about this briefly when I talked about Dr. Claire, but we'll, mm-hmm. we'll go into a little more detail. So engine knocking isn't just a sound, but it's also a sensation. While driving, everything under the hood would essentially rattle and knock together, causing the car to vibrate and oftentimes the engine to suddenly lose power. At this point in history, even the engineers that made cars knew very little about how everything worked. Hmm. Kettering himself admitted that, quote, we don't even know what makes an automobile run. So they certainly didn't understand why the knocking was happening, but Midgley Mm -hmm. was determined to find an answer. That kind of surprises me. I thought they would understand a little bit. I'm sure they do, but maybe they don't understand. They don't have the knowledge or the chemistry. Yeah, I think it's the specificity of the physics that's happening or the the chemical combustions that are happening Mm -hmm. that they Mm -hmm. probably can't grasp. I will also put it out there. I did look up his image and everything came flooding back to me. So when we did the former episode on Dr. Patterson and led then, I told Mm -hmm. Phil about it. And uh-huh. Phil did text back. I And I even like was like, oh, let me check the text because I think this is where I actually have heard of this. He texted back. He's like, oh, was this episode anything about um, Thomas Midgley? And I was mm. like, no. We didn't talk. But then I looked it up back then. Then, And I know yeah. it's going to happen. Yeah. I'll, I'll give my two cents at the end. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. So to start out with try to solve this problem, Midgley de- deployed a miniature camera that would take pictures at top speeds. And he placed it within the cars to see if he could visualize the knocking. Mm -hmm. And what he found was that the fuel in the cylinders were igniting too quickly. Mm -hmm. And thus the energy from igniting was not transferred to the pistons to optimize the power of the car, but was instead transferred to the body of the car, resulting in passengers experiencing these unwanted vibrations. Mm -hmm. After seeing this, it became clear to Midgley that he wouldn't be able to engineer a solution that this was a chemistry problem. Mm -hmm. Although Midgley adored chemistry, he wasn't a chemist. So at the end of the day, yet at the end of the day, he was assigned to this task. So he had to figure out a way to understand this. So he basically learned chemistry on the fly. Mm-hmm. He assembled a team, got to work in the lab to concoct a solution. Midgley was a huge admirer of the periodic table. So naturally he turned to the periodic table as a starting source of his inspiration. And over the course of five years, him and his team tested 33,000 different compounds and combos from the PR table elements. Eventually, Midgley tried tellurium, which actually did get rid of a significant amount of knocking. But as a historian, Joseph C. Robert wrote, the tellurium emitted a satanic garlic smell. So it was nixed. Mm. Satanic. I love garlic. I love garlic. I was <laughs> yeah. like, honestly, why not? Why not? I know. <laughs> Then he added, so, but this was a step in the right direction. Ultimately, Midgley realized that the heavier the element, the more engine knocking dissipated, which is what led Midgley to lead. Mm-hmm. He added a single teaspoon of lead to gasoline, and as if like magic, the engine knocking was silenced. And surprisingly, little lead was needed. Just uh, he settled on a ratio of just one part of lead to 1,300 parts of gasoline. And in 1923, leaded gasoline officially came on the market under the brand name of Ethel Corporation. And the immediate impact was profound. Drivers could charge up steep hills with no issues. They could accelerate on the highway. They could change lanes all without worrying about the engine seizing up or 
just stopping kaput mm-hmm. in the middle of the freeway. So it did take long for General Motors, DuPont, and Standard Oil to begin their joint venture into leaded gasoline, as I said, called Ethyl Corp. This changed the automotive industry virtually overnight because engine knocking was a limiting factor in wanting to own a car. So with engine knocking eliminated, registered car owners in the U.S. tripled. By 1930, Americans owned 80% of cars in the world, and that was in large part due to Midgley's invention. Then a few years later, Midgley had another stroke of genius. Tales all this time, man creating fire. We, we have been able to create fire artificially and generate heat artificially for millennia, mm-hmm. but we have yet to technologically figure out how to keep something artificially cold. It was only in the early 20th century that the first electric-powered home fridges came onto the market. And GM actually acquired one of these companies and renamed it Frigid Air, which we still have today. And once again, GM came face-to-face with another industry-wide issue. There wasn't a great way to create an artificially cold environment to keep cold, keep food cold in a fridge. And past coolants were met with utter disaster. For example, at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, an ice manufacturing plant exploded and killed 16 people when mm. the ammonia they were using as a refrigerant lit on fire. Methyl chloride was also another coolant that was but was involved in so many deaths across the country from fridge leaks. And frigid air was not immune either. Their fridges used sulfur dioxide, which was a toxic gas that if leaked could cause nausea, GI issues, and lung damage. I didn't know this, but it generally got so bad that the government almost put forward a law banning home fridges altogether. So what the world needed was a new refrigerant that was safe, but also effective. So Kettering called Mitchley back into his office, just like he did several years earlier with the engine knocking and asked him to find a solution. Of course, he never, Mitchley never shied from a challenge. And he, he also knew instinctively that this would also come from chemistry or the solution will also come from chemistry. So once again, he goes back to the periodic table, but this time he was more selective about what elements he tested. He essentially narrowed down that he only wanted to test elements that were gaseous at low temperatures, which is what is needed for a refrigerant. And finally, he found an element that ticked all the boxes, which was fluorine. Fluorine is super toxic on its own, but Midgley was hoping to combine it with another element that would render it non-toxic. So literally just a few hours, Midgley and his team came up with a compound that combined fluorine, chlorine, and carbon, which is now a class called chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs. Kettering wrote later that this compound was, quote, highly stable, non-flammable, and altogether without harmful effects on man or animals. So GM quickly partnered with DuPont again after having a successful previous partnership with lead gasoline, and they started to manufacture CFC in bulk. Finally, in 1932, this miracle cool compound was ready for market under a catchy name of Freon. And it could not have come at a better time because so many people were dying from methyl chloride leaks all over the country. Newspapers were running headlines labeling fridges as, a, as poison gas ice boxes. So it was this perfect stage all set for Midgley. And he actually did kind of perform in a way. At the American Chemical Society of 1930, Midgley got up on stage and like a magician, he started to perform a trick. He inhaled Freon gas and then blew it out by blowing out a candle. And that he did this because it simultaneously proved that Freon was not only not flammable, 
but also safe. Mm. And the Frigidaire marketing continued to carry that message, stating the new Freon-powered refrigerator line was made in the pursuit of health and safety, and it led to the discovery of Freon. It was an overnight sensation, and by 1935, they had sold 8 million fridges. Then Willis Carrier of the Aircon units, they wanted to get in on this whole Freon situation because it's, it's keeping things cold. They're in the business of keeping things cold too. So they used Freon gas to create a new type of AC unit called an atmospheric cabinet. This is kind of interesting. If you look up some of the old ads from that time in the 50s, it, it's kind of cool what, how they use it. But Freon in your fridge was not the real danger here. It was only when Freon was repurposed into a handheld product that would have a dastardly ripple effect on the environment. I would say technically the next invention wasn't Midgley's, but it, he is still credited with the negative impact since he ultimately was the one who invented Freon. So in 1941, two chemists at the USDA, one of them a former employee of DuPont, invented an aerosol version of Freon to be used as an insecticide mist. Essentially, Freon was being used as an aerosol propellant carrier for whatever you wanted to disperse as a fine mist or spray. And during World War II, malaria became a huge problem in the Philippines. Many people were dying from the mosquito-borne illness, so the U.S. military increased manufacturing for bug bombs or insect repellents to protect U.S. troops. And this really marked the beginning of the aerosol industry. And at the heart of it all was Freon, which was being used to disperse everything from military-grade DDT to commercial hairspray. In the span of 10 years, one man invented two substances that in the short term dramatically improved consumers' lives in the food safety, refrigeration, and automobile industries. Mm -hmm. But the long-term price is one that we are all still paying on an astronomical scale. Maybe this is part of the nuance that I'm talking about, and maybe you'll discuss about this too, Megan, because it's like, is it fair to pin this one man as being responsible for all of this if you don't really know the effects until later down the line. Mm -hmm. And we'll kind of get to that because there is talk that Midgley knew exactly what he was getting into, at least with the lead portion, which we will discuss Mm -hmm. in more detail. Before we get into the rest of the episode, if you've been enjoying our content so far, please go rate and review us wherever you might be listening from or don't. Just keep on hanging with us. All right, on to the rest of the episode. But there are many instances of that where, you know, history is full of unintended consequences side effects from groundbreaking Mm. to technology or innovations. Sometimes the side effects are in our favor and sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. for example, Gutenberg with the developed the printing press, it had a beneficial consequence of increasing literacy rates, which in turn led for the need for more glasses for the first time to make glasses or spectacles. Businesses had to invest in glass and lens making, which in turn led to the invention of the microscope and the telescope. Yet, unlike many scientific inventions in which the unintended consequences were only seen decades down the line, there was a dark and dirty truth about tetraethyl lead that was known from the start. Mm -hmm. The creators and owners that made up Ethel Corp, GM, DuPont, and Standard Oil were fully aware that tetraethyl lead was extremely toxic to humans and the environment. Mitchell himself was working very closely with this product and was also severely affected. His lungs and breathing took a toll, but he somehow downplayed the severity, whether it was on purpose or he generally believed it wasn't a big deal. It's, it's unclear, but he, he is stated writing a letter to a friend. He's saying cheerily that quote, the cure for said ailment is not only extremely simple, but quite delightful. It means to pack up, climb a train and search for a suitable golf course in the state named Florida. 
but it wasn't long before reality came trickling in. And this is something that we touched back on the Dr. Claire Patterson episode. At DuPont's New Jersey facility, eight workers in the factory died from delirium due to tetraethyl-lead poisoning. Within 18 months, 300 more workers were also poisoned. The New York Times wrote, quote, one of the early symptoms is a hallucination of winged insects. Hmm. The victim pauses, perhaps while at work or in a rational conversation, gazes intently at space, and snatches at something that's not there. Eventually, the victims would descend into violent or self-destructive insanity. And this is trigger warning. There will be mentions of suicide. One worker threw himself off a ferry in a suicide attempt. Another jumped from a hospital window. Many had to be placed in straitjackets or strapped to their beds as they convulsed in abject terror. Before work was halted at the plant, the hallucinations of swarming insects became so widespread that the five-story building where Ethel was produced was called the House of Butterflies. Hmm. It's hard to pinpoint what's the worst part about all this, but arguably the worst part is that Midgley and Kettering had an alternative to tetraethyl lead, ethanol. Ethanol was safer and just as effective as lead for its anti-knock properties. So why didn't they simply switch to ethanol? Because you can't patent alcohol. Then the Surgeon General of the United States held a public investigation to the hazards of lead in May of 1925. Kettering was called to speak on behalf of Ethel Corp against a slew of doctors and scientists. Somehow, the Surgeon General Committee ended their investigation, stating that they found no evidence that lead posed a risk to the general public. So lead and gasoline factories across the country were back up and running, and Ethel Corp was now present in 90% of gasoline sold in the United States. I was kind of having this thought that perhaps... You've seen Mr. Robot, right, Megan? I never finished, so... But you, you like, know the premise, right? Not fully. No, I feel like I watch episode one and I never get past episode one. Not that I don't think it's a good show. I just, that's my experience with it. So So for people who have watched Mr. Robot, basically the the main character, Robin Malik, is like this vigilante hacker. The biggest conglomerate in the nation in that world is something, I don't even know what it's actually called, but he sees it as E-Corp. And E-Corp is ever, that's like the premise of the entire series from season one to the yeah. end of the season. And I'm wondering if the writers or the show creators of Mr. Robot pulled from this real life scenario of Ethel Corp to make it E-Corp in there. Mm. Because this place is Possible. horrible, horrible. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? I think we know. You know, well, of, not the not the robot, Mr. Robot reference, but the, like how the Surgeon General's committee was like, oh, there's no evidence I'm like, yeah, because you're in each other's pockets, man. No, seriously. And I think that's stuff that, like, we know, and it's really hard to stomach. Uh, that yeah. still happens today. Mm-hmm. So you, you asked the question, is it right to pinpoint all this stuff mm. on one man, the inventor of these chemicals? When you first said that, in my mind, I was like, yes, because I know he knew the the threat of toxicity, but I don't think it's just on him. Like, I changed my answer. Yeah. It's not just on him because he had a group of people around him that were okay with the product and knew the exact same information he had. So they all had yeah. equal opportunity to be like, well, you know what? Let's switch to ethanol. But to them, that doesn't make sense because then you don't make a profit. So it's simple, simple, simple. (laughs) It it truly is. It's big business, man. That's all it is. 
It's all about the bottom line, whatever, whatever this is going to cost you. I would say that the tetraethyl lead component definitely his, when I say his fault, I mean, it, they all were aware of it ahead of time. It wasn't a scenario where, oh no, like 30 years down the line, they found out lead was toxic free. It wasn't like that. They knew from the start. I think with Freon, that was a different scenario where they genuinely thought it was a safer product or they were try- yeah. I was trying to make it a safer product and we just mm-hmm. didn't know the consequences down yeah. until way down the line. And we'll get it. We'll get into the, that. And that was honestly it. So after that, let's see, what, when was it? it? That meeting happened in May of 1925. So from 1925 to virtually the 1990s, leaded gasoline, the leaded gasoline industry remained unchallenged under Ethyl Corp until geochemist Dr. Claire Patterson started to measure rocks to determine the age of the earth. Literally, that's like <laughs> yeah. that's what it came down to because even him, like as obviously we know that story, and for those of you who don't, go listen to that. Dr. Patterson was not setting out, his his whole premise and goal of doing this was not to figure out that lead was in everything. It was this happy accident and byproduct mm-hmm. of him trying to understand how old the earth was, right? Yeah. So that kind of gives you a sense that even the scientific community wasn't necessarily looking at this either. So it's kind of this impressive feat of how they remained unchallenged for so long. And there's more that goes into that. But basically, Thomas Midgley was the head of the clinical, not clinical trials, but head of the research trials that went into researching the safety and efficacy of lead in gasoline. So if he's also the one running those research experiments, obviously he's, he's going to cherry pick the data. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it took from the early 1920s to nearly the early 1990s for anyone to take Dr. Patterson's findings seriously that lead was toxic to humans and the environment. Mm-hmm. When we finally started to phase out lead in the 70s, it was estimated that single action saved 1.2 million lives a year. Mm-hmm. The realization that CFCs and Freon were also toxic happened in a similar, unlikely, and peculiar peculiar way. And it happened with a British scientist named James Lovelock. I highly recommend you search this guy, James Lovelock. There is an image of him in his lab, and he is just cheesing it. He's the most adorable person. Like, we must protect him at all costs. He loves science. Like, his face is like, I love science. <laughs> I'm looking him up right now. <laughs> And while you look him up, I'll continue. So this British scientist named James Lovelock was at his vacation home in the beautiful bucolic West Coast of Ireland when he wanted to know if the haze outside his home that was obscuring his wonderful views was natural or human-made because he couldn't recall seeing that haze growing up as a child. Mm -hmm. He figured that if the haze was man-made, that it was likely made up of synthetic chemicals originating from an urban city. He knew CFCs were a popular synthetic chemical, so he decided to invent a device that could detect and measure gases in the environment in the tiniest amounts with peak precision more than ever before, like Mm -hmm. casual. His hypothesis before starting was that on clear days when fresh air was coming from the Atlantic that hadn't passed through a city yet, the CFCs should be close to undetectable. However, his device detected CFCs even on the clearest of days with ample breeze. So Lovelock decided to conduct his own scientific experiment by taking his device on a grand sea voyage from England to Antarctica, taking CFC measurements along the course of the journey. And wherever he went, he found high concentrations of CFCs. All the way in the most remote parts of Antarctica, CFCs were present, proving for the first time that CFCs were dispersed across the entire world. 
Lovelock presented his findings at a scientific conference in 1972 with meteorologists and chemists. His data intrigued two chemists there, Sherwood Rowland and Mario Molina, who did further research to discover that CFCs, unlike other chemicals, have no natural sinks on Earth where the chemical could safely dissolve. The CFCs simply floated up and accumulated in the upper atmosphere. And while being in the upper atmosphere, the sun's UV rays would then ultimately break the CFCs down. That chemical reaction releases chlorine from the chlorofluorocarbon, and this chlorine single-handedly formed a hole in the ozone layer just above Antarctica from the human-made CFCs concocted in Mitchell's lab 50 years earlier. This sparked immediate alarm in the scientific community because the ozone layer provides a protective shield, as we know, against the sun's harmful UV rays, which causes cancer in humans and animals. Rowland's research showed that if we continue producing CFCs at this rate, it would destroy 50% of the ozone layer by 2050. By 2065, two-thirds of the ozone would be gone. In places like D.C. and Paris, being outside for just five minutes would cause sunburns. Skin cancer rates would skyrocket and affect plant life by decreasing CO2 absorption through photosynthesis, which in turn would increase global warming. So just all and above, just not great. The striking images of the ozone hole above Antarctica made it real and was the catalyst for the Montreal Protocol, an international collaboration that banned CFCs under the UN in 1987. Although banning CFCs had been effective, the ozone recovery is slow. The CFCs immediately created in 1928 and caused the hole in the ozone is not expected to recover until 2080. This invention of one chemical would take 152 years to hopefully undo. Was it possible for Midgley and GM to come up with a different, more safe alternative to both lead gasoline and CFCs? Lead gasoline, a thousand percent, yes. CFCs is a little more unclear. At the end of the day, it's not even worth debating because the damage is already done. Mm -hmm. Now's the time to talk about preservation and hopefully reversing what we can. And I'll just finish up because we're already done here. Uh, to go back to how he died. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I said, I use the word karma. It's like some mm-hmm. say it's poetic justice. Some say it's karma or just life. But in the end, it was one of Mitchley's own inventions that killed him. It wasn't the CFCs. It wasn't the leaded gasoline, but a device that he made to help him get up and out of bed because he had uh, polio. Polio, right. Right. He died when he became entangled in the ropes, which ultimately strangled him. And that is the story of Thomas Bidgley, the man who invented two of the 20th century's most deadliest substances. Sometimes when people refer to Thomas Midgley, they're like, this is actually the most prolific murderer yeah. <laughs> in modern American history or something. Like Sometimes that's how the science world refers to him uh, yeah. because of the leaded gasoline. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that is always interesting to me. That's like a bigger philosophical question, but I like, but he did have knowledge that he had a alternative. So I'm like, yeah, some some part there's some ownership there. Right. I didn't know too much about Freon, but I knew about the whole ozone layer impact. Mm -hmm. And to know that by 2080, that's the predicted timeline that it will all be reversed. Mm-hmm. I had to do the math. I was like, will I still be alive then? The answer is yes. yes. We'll be in our Hopefully. 70s, I think. Oh, my God. Um, wait, is that right? 60 plus? No, we'll be in our 80s. Oh my God. Um, we'll be old. Yeah. But 
I think what mostly comes to mind is when talking about ozone layer stuff, that was seemed like something very present back in the early 2000s. I feel like people talked a lot about the ozone then. Mm -hmm. I don't hear it too much now. The conversation has shifted to global warming and climate change and... Right. So I I'm curious where where conversation about the ozone went. You know, like why does it why does it shift? I'm sure there's socio political influence there. How is our ozone today? Is it recovering as we speak? It is. Oh, are definitely. we doing? Are we contributing? Doing anything now with our more modern technology and developments? That's impacting the ozone. Do you know? Yes, I do. So the ozone layer is actually recovering quite nicely. I think. If I'm remembering correctly from even just the pictures, but also the research, we Mm -hmm. are very much on track, if not ahead of schedule of recovering the ozone layer because banning CFCs, as as I mentioned, there's not a lot of chemicals that don't get naturally broken up within just like Mm -hmm. the regular atmosphere. That was a very unique situation where it just kind of lingered, right, in the upper atmosphere. So with, yeah. with eliminating that altogether was a huge, huge help in that step of reversing the ozone mm-hmm. issue. And I think the reason why the conversation has shifted to more global warming in terms of like pollution, just like environmental protection, is because yeah. we sort of have a handle on the ozone situation now. Now it's yeah. about like the ice is melting, the permafrost, mm-hmm. like all these other things that people are not seeing the people are not seeing the effects on their day-to-day basis. And it's causing an issue, a cumulative issue that we need to solve more rapidly than the ozone. Yeah. But I, I, I agree with you, Megan. Like, I remember hearing all the ozone conversations happening in the early to mid 2000s. And then it's mm-hmm. just sort of dropped off uh, to talk about global yeah. warming. That was the thing we had to be very concerned about back then. And then, you know, high school came around and college yeah. flew by. And I'm like, I don't think I heard the word ozone once. No. And then now we're here. Yeah, because I even remember like growing up, maybe like Girl Scout age, so maybe like six or seven. I remember knowing even at that young age, oh, mm-hmm. hairspray is not good. Like it, I didn't know why, yeah, but yeah, I knew that yeah, yeah. hairspray you shouldn't like aerosols. use too much hairspray or aerosols. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. Like don't put it. Yeah. I remember like you. Sh- my mom was like, don't spray it out in the yeah, backyard don't spray too or whatever. In the air. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't spray too much in the Keep air. Keep it inside. Not that that exactly. really changes anything. I know. Exactly. So I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have the game Spy Fox. I don't know if you uh-huh. played any of those games. No. But Spy Fox 2, I think, had to do with him, uh, the villain had a giant hairspray scan hair hairspray no. can in outer space no. like as a satellite and the villain's plan was like to deplete the ozone so as my fox he had to like stop that from happening is, is it a video game <laughs> it's like one of those little um children's computer games where you uh, like, yeah, click yeah. on things but yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah. they'd be very hard like sometimes what you needed to do was not as intuitive. And mm-hmm. I remember my dad would sometimes hover to kind of see like, oh, what you guys playing? Because my dad was really yeah. into playing video games, computer games with us. And there yeah. were some things that even he was like, "I this is not <laughs> as intuitive as I thought it would be. But yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, they did Spy Fox Spy and Pajama Fox. Sam and Freddy Fish and Putt Putt Saves the Zoo. Like all great and they are all Dude. on PS4. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I am running away with this. But if you guys this know what cool. I'm talking about and you want to replay it and you have a PS4, I think the whole collection is like 20 bucks on P- PS4. And it's just like, dude, you can play it with your your niece. It'd be so fun oh for her. God. It might be a little too advanced, but it's yeah, bomb. yeah, yeah. 
bomb. This looks so fun. I'm so looking it fun. up right now. Yeah. Spy Fox. Spy Fox, you love things. it. You'll love it. Yes. Oh, love. I love espionage and foxes. <laughs> Uh, that was that's the other thing that makes me think about the ozone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, as a, as a child, memory. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was interesting. Bring it, bring it back. I actually did. Let me think. Like I was gonna say, did I not hear about Thomas Midgley in my research? I did see his name, but I was like, this is already getting too long, so I'm gonna right, skip. right. Like who's another? <laughs> it was like one of those scenarios. Significant yeah. player. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, isn't yeah. that like, wow. isn't that amazing? The scale of the damage. Right. has led to so many um you know big big players being involved in that history of this mm-hmm. one chemical mm-hmm. or this you know the lead gasoline um and it just it just says a lot about our united states economy and how we do business and how we run our laws mm-hmm. because dupont has had some terrible run-ins with the environment industry like this is not the first one yeah uh, because they are they were the whole they had that whole run with Teflon. Um, so I'm like, dude, they have just had one thing after the other GM as well. Like that's still a very massive company. I don't know about standard yeah. oil to be honest, but mm-hmm. definitely standard, uh, GM and DuPont are huge. And the fact mm-hmm. that uh, our government basically didn't say a peep about lead gasoline for nearly what? 80 years. Yeah. maybe Right. Until this one scientist came knocking on everyone's doors. Like, hello. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, doing this? Hey, yeah. It's kind of nuts to me, but yeah. Whenever we get stories like this, there's the silver lining as we grow and we learn as scientists in our research, we try to do a better job each time. Fingers crossed. Hopefully Mm -hmm. that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. But I do tend to have a more pessimistic outlook, or I guess it's almost like a neutral outlook that we'll always have moments like this in our journey to do better and be advanced. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. hearing the story... I'm like, fast forward to today, we're in our electric car movement. And that's really great and very cool. And that's crazy that we've accomplished this thing of having electric cars. But you know, now you hear about how lithium mining is impacting the environment in South America. And, you know, stuff like that. And, And I actually, it's not that it's a pessimistic outlook. It's just like, this is just human nature and as long as we live in the type of capitalist society that america operates on and most of the global economy operates on we will always have these moments no matter how much we think we have learned because we are always learning and that's can be very sad or you can just be like that's life (laughs) and exactly so i don't know it's just it's mind-boggling how we because you're completely right like we think oh we're doing green energy, green technology. But then as you mentioned, the lithium, the, the rare earth minerals behind it all, it's just, it's just, I don't know. It's just like same thing, but different flavors yeah. of horribleness, you know, but we yeah. just don't see, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if there is a better option alternative and it. There are, but they just cost money and people mm-hmm. don't want to ruin their bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that. Anyway, all right. So let's go into antidotes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Go for it, vegan. Our, our, nice job, Harini. All right. My antidote is that I took a risk today. I, I was having a Slack chat with our CEO. And for context, it's a small company. I see the CEO of my company almost every day. But to give you the scope of hierarchy, I am an office admin and he, and he is the CEO. <laughs> 
So yeah. like, you know, there's types of professionalism, of course, that you want. You want to be respectful and you want to be respected in return. Can't be goofy yes. nutso like how, how I talk sometimes <laughs> on this podcast. But yeah. there is a scenario this week at work where we had clients come to the office and Again, for additional context, I'm pretty much like front desk reception. Yeah. And usually I like to be in the know if we have clients that come in. So this time I wasn't in the know. So I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> who are these people? <laughs> like, yeah. who is this group at the door? But it was all figured out and it was not a non-issue. But for myself, I don't like to be um, on my toes like that because I think it makes me look bad and it makes the company mm-hmm. look like, oh, you, you're not, you weren't ready to receive us or something like that. Right. But it yeah. all worked out. It all worked out. Yeah. The CEO ended up Slack messaging me and he ended up apologizing to me for the those group coming in because he was actually the one who coordinated that. And he pretty much was like, oh, you know, like, yeah, I was I'm I know these clients. I apologize for not letting you know. Um, I'll make sure that there's like, you know, proper workflow in place next time around so that like everyone's in the know. And he totally did not need to apologize. Like, I'm more of an action person. As long as someone's copying me later on these invites, perfect. Yeah. So it's very, very nice of him to apologize. So I slacked him back and I said, hey, no worries. We're all good. And the risk that I took was I sent a YouTube link. And I said, I was like, this is me when this group arrived yesterday. And the YouTube link was the snippet from the SpongeBob episode where I forget the context of the episode, but basically Patrick has his rock and there's a bunch of people under his rock. They're like hiding. I think they're hiding from Sandy and SpongeBob or something like that. And they're they're all their eyes are sticking out from the rock. And the episode <laughs> ends with Patrick walking up to the rock and he goes, who are you people? And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to send this silly video just because it's lighthearted, but I recognize the risk is, I'm sending this to a freaking CEO. Yeah. And he might look at this and be like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I know. Like, this is unprofesh. Unprofesh. No response. That would have been the yeah, worst. Yeah, exactly. Response I know. No I was like, response. oh, yeah. no. So I was like, I don't care. I'm sending it because that's true to me. I don't think it's that's that right. harmful. Whatever. So yeah, I sent yeah, it. Yeah. And then he sent back the sweetest Slack message. He wrote, thanks for the Patrick video. Just the right moment that I needed a laugh. Aww. Good. It paid off. So it good. paid off. Yeah. Huge so that's chaos. my that's my antidote. Lovely. That's that. I think that's phenomenal. And and this is what I was telling Megan. Now it's another word of wisdom is coming to me. And this is something that I was told from my mother-in-law, so Dave's mom. She always told me, she's like, I realized very early on that everyone are just human beings. She's like, and she used Dave in a context. She was like, if Dave becomes <laughs> the biggest CEO in the world and he mm-hmm. becomes this big shot. It doesn't matter because he will always be my my little boy. Like he'll always be my son, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and and that goes through for anybody. Like even if they're the biggest big shot in the world, the biggest celebrity, they're a human being, and they're always yeah. going to be a human being. And mm-hmm. that is where your connection will always lie. So right. never forget that they might be huge, but they're going to be a human at the end of the day. They have the same laughs and dislikes or whatever. So I think that was phenomenal that Megan took that risk because. Everyone needs cheering up. Everyone loves a goofy Mm -hmm. (laughs) SpongeBob meme, even if you don't watch it. And I also told her for everybody that people are never going to remember what you said. They're going to remember how you made them feel. 
I'll quickly say mine. My mine is very simple. My antidote is I am here with my family. We said this in the last episode, but we had to cut it because I was being a ding dong and didn't realize that they weren't going to be here yet. But basically I flew from Malaysia and surprised both my parents and my brother and my family and my niece because she was turning two. Uh, and I told them for months that I wasn't going to be able to make it but I surprised them and it's been really nice to spend time with them and spend time with me. So that is my antidote. Surprising the crap out of people. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you're getting really, really good family time. I had texted Harini. I was like, how's family time? She didn't respond back for like a full 18 hours. I'm like, okay, that means good. She's, she's really enjoying her family time. She's occupied and I'm sure they're loving having her back yeah so yeah it's been great all right let's take on take myself on out of this episode so don't risk it for that leaded freon ozone hole biscuit all right no don't do it all right don't do it bye guys